essentially, these ships then can do whatever the hell they want to. They can be in whatever terrible conditions they can be. They can pay extremely low wages. They can obey very few environmental regulations, and they can still go on ahead and you know float. This is the way capitalism operates. So it's not that it's broken or corrupt. This is exactly how capital works. This is the Dependence Podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. And my name is Geert Maarsen. And today we dive into the wonderful world of international logistics. The last few years have shown us how tight, fragile or unresilient our system of global trade has become. Whether it is shortages and price rises and thus inflation or the story of this one container ship, the Ever Given, that got stuck sideways in the Suez Canal and single-handedly shut down half of the global distribution overnight. We are in a global supply chain crisis. So today we want to look at capitalism through a maritime lens and take a dive into the world of big ship capitalism. A system that has brought us extreme wealth and globalization, but also inequality and environmental disaster. Joining us today is Lale Khalili, professor of international politics and writer of the book Sinews of War and Trade, about shipping and capitalism. Geert is uh, renovating the studio. But uh, I think we're I think we're I think we're almost ready. <laughs> how long how long uh, do you have? About an hour I, is that about an hour is perfect. Okay, yes, perfect. Yeah. At the moment, I'm marking essays, and I have about sixty essays tomorrow. Oh wow! So, so yeah, so I have to go back from that. So we are a welcome you. distraction from your monotone. Uh... Definitely, yes. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm very happy to be with you. Thank you very much for asking me. You wrote a a fantastic book uh, that is about international shipping. It's about uh, a little bit about the crisis in international logistics. It's about understanding it. It's about, as you call it, sinews of war and trade. Um, Why is it so interesting to look at capitalism? Because that's one of the things you did through... Uh, through this lens of of international shipping and and international trade? Um, Thank you for uh, saying nice things about the book. Um, It was uh, quite an interesting book to write and very different than anything else I've written, in part precisely because it dealt with issues that um, were very unfamiliar to me. And I, uh, you know, I'm a researcher. This is the sort of kinds of things that I research. And so I figured that it must be also very unfamiliar to most of my readers. And some of those things were, for example, the fact that um, so much of um, what we use um, is transported on board ships. There are some estimates that somewhere between 80 to 90% of all the world's goods um, are transported aboard um, ships. And I think that that in in itself is an astonishing statistic, because when you actually think about the way that we represent global trade today or the global movement of things today, people often think that everything is virtual, that somehow, you know, everything is happening via the internet, or um, even the sort of the movements of capital um, are, are thought to happen virtually. And of course, we know that that is 
is not the case, and and that the that in fact that um, uh, so much uh, everything that you look around you, probably even the phone that is sitting on the walls of your studio, or some of the equipment that you're using, or um, the the computer that is sitting in front of me, and which through which I'm speaking to, even books are printed sometimes halfway across the world and shipped um, over. India is becoming one of the world's biggest places where books are printed, and so so many things are transported by shipping. And I think that that was one of the factors that I thought was really fascinating and I really wanted to write about. What is your personal fascination or you call it an obsession at a certain point in this book with with, with everything maritime? What is it that, that, that caught your attention? Um, it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, I, I guess I could do some sort of a Freudian explanation. Um, but I grew up actually in a landlocked place. I grew up in uh, the city of Mashhad in Iran, which is about um, a thousand kilometers from the nearest uh, sort of large body of water, um, whether it's the Caspian Sea or going down to the Gulf of Oman and the Persian Gulf. And so um, it is not necessarily that I grew up next to the sea, as many people who actually write about the sea tended to have done so. One of the greatest historians of maritime movement of people, Marcus Redeker, actually grow up in Norfolk, Virginia, right on the water. So um, I think the reason that I became interested in it um, is in part because the own, my own history is a history of migration and movement. So I, um, at the age of 17, I went to the US um, uh, uh, and, I, um, in, and in 2001, I moved from the US to, to, to Britain. And through that process of movement, one becomes aware of the shifts in the way things work and in the transformations that have been wrought over the course of time in social relations and political relations. I think that those constant movements and migrations have been sort of the intimate and personal reasons that I've written about the book. But I'm also, I became obsessed with it because once I started researching the project, it became clear to me that a lot of the stuff that I had written about previously, um, and, uh, you know, my uh, I've been an academic now for, academic and a researcher for about 20 years, and a lot of the stuff that I read about previously had to do with movement of, um, for example, ex military expertise. I've written about uh, counterinsurgency wars and I've written about Palestinian uh, political mobilization. And in all of those, the notion of movement uh, and mobility of ideas, of doctrines, of people, of uh, international solidarity even, um, were very central. And so it was really fascinating for me to see also for something very pedestrian like cargo, um, we also end up um, uh, having to center this idea of mobility. Um, it, and it became an obsession also because it was a really extraordinarily fun thing to research. Because aside from the fact that you got to travel to a lot of ports in a lot of the world, um, I actually got to travel on container ships. And, and, um, uh, and of course, you know, uh, if you've been to Rotterdam, I'm sure you have, uh, or you, you are in Rotterdam, uh, you know that container ships are sort of the lifeblood of large port cities. And so, um, traveling on a container ship in itself was an extraordinary experience. Um, aside from the fact that they are enormous behemoths, I, um, the, one of the two uh, trips that I was on, the ship that I was on, was at the time the largest container ship that was traveling. It has now been surpassed by a ship that's another 30 meters longer than that one, if you can believe that. And what kind of insights did it deliver you on how we organize international trade and international logistics? 
So one of the things that's really fascinating is the extent to which these um, infrastructures um, that are uh, used for uh, transportation appear in places which um, have a particular kind of politics. What do I mean by that? So you would imagine that if you have these particular massive infrastructures like ports, um, that they are often, we imagine, that they are put in places where, for example, the sea is quite deep, where, for example, there is quite a significant large city with a large population that is um, that the port is supposed to serve, um, or um, any other number of sort of geographical or natural reasons for that. But in fact, what emerges, um, and certainly this was particularly the case about the port of Jabal Ali, which is which was the end point of my travels. J- Jabal Ali is the port of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. One of the things that emerges out of that is that in fact politics has been you know, crucial to the making of the port of Jabal Ali. Jabal Ali is a port of transit. So it is not a destination port like, uh, for example, Rotterdam is. Um, but, or, and it's not a, uh, uh, and it's not a starting port, like, for example, Shenzhen in China would be, right? Where goods are put on the ship and they're shipped out from there. What transit ports do, um, and that's the case for also, for example, Singapore. Singapore is the other very significant transit port, is that they become nodes of distribution of goods from one particular location. And so it doesn't matter, for example, that the city of Dubai is only two and a half million population in it, because it, in fact, the hinterland for Dubai, where the goods that come and pass through Dubai, um, it ends up going to lots of different places, including Iran, Iraq, uh, Pakistan, India, the East Coast of Africa, up the Gulf, etc. Now, so that's interesting uh, because, in fact, even at moments where, for example, Abu Dhabi has been at war, and you know the other city states in the United Arab Emirates, um, where different countries um, in in the region, or it has had a frosty relations, say, for example, with Iran, that relationship of trade has not ceased. Um, so that's the first thing that's really fascinating. The second thing that's really fascinating is that Jabal Ali actually is not a natural port. It's not a naturally, it does not have felicitous um, geographic reasons for it being where it is. Um, it, it sits on an extremely shallow body of water that has underwater currents that constantly um, actually fill up the channel in which ships come down to uh, Jabal Ali with sand. And so this is a sh- this is a port that has to constantly, um, its waterways have to be constantly dredged and remade in order for the port to function. In fact, Jabal Ali is not, at- there is nothing nat- natural about the port or the harbor itself. As they boast about it, it's the world's largest man-made port. Everything about it, everything all the harbors, everything about it has had to be dug into this extremely shallow, sandy body of water. Now, that to you guys is also probably unsurprising because Rotterdam also is one of those ports in the world where everything about it has to be remade. It sits below sea level. It has to have water protection. You know, dikes has to have to protect it. Um, it constantly expands out to sea. So, for example, the Rotterdam Gateway, uh, which is which is managed by Dubai Ports World Ship Port Management Company um, is, uh, it, you know, it's the Rotterdam Gateway had to be extended. An, an enormous amount of sort of construction and land reclamation had to be done in order for the gateway to, to open. And so there's a politics also involved in that. You, you also write about the uh, 
the ecological consequences of what you just described, the, the, the dredging, the, the land reclamation, the things we're all proud of in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, that, that were the best baggeraars in the world, the best dredgers. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? What is, what, 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 what is the scope and the scale of what, of, of, of what you've seen there? So that's quite fascinating. And, um, and it's fascinating in part to me also because I have an undergraduate degree in engineering. So I'm actually really actually interested in the technical elements that has gone into this. So one of the things about the Arabian Peninsula that's really interesting is that its um, topography and its um, marine topography is very different on the two sides of the peninsula. Um, on the Red Sea side, um, that is where the continental divide is. And so there are, you have two continental plates, which has Asia and Africa meeting in the middle of the Red Sea. Um, and it's uh, it actually gets deep really, really fast, right? Um, and and um, what is also interesting about the Red Sea is that it is um, uh, it has a it has an extremely rich uh, coral um, reef uh, marine ecology. But that also translates into both sides of the Red Sea having these extremely hard coral um, kind of um, uh, collections along running alongside the shore, um, which is utterly beautiful. Um, and I, as you know, it's stunning. If you've ever been to Sinai, for example, you're very familiar with the kind of um, underwater um, eco-life um, kind of, that, that is absolutely mind-blowing. It's a very warm, salty sea. So some of the... Um, Underwater flora um, that that exists there, as well as the the sort of the animal life that are, are, are unique to that particular kind of ecology because of the salinity of the Red Sea uh, and the heat um, of the water there. Um, but it also means that the ports that are built on the two sides of the Red Sea um, often have to dig out these extremely hard coral reefs that run parallel to the shore in order for the ships to get to them. And you see this in the port of Jeddah. On one of the ships that I was on, I actually, the ship that I was on was going into the port of Jeddah. And the amount of maneuvering that has to be done in order for the ship not to scrape alongside some of these reefs that are out to sea is astonishing. And so one of the easiest things for the countries which manage these ports to do is to actually just dig up these reefs, regardless of what that might translate into for the submarine line of the sea itself. So that's what happens on that side. You you end up kind of destroying these um, uh, these uh, incredible sort of uh, living kind of um, uh, ecosystems that are that are that are there in the submarine. On the on the Gulf side, um, this is a very shallow sea. It's very different. It was actually essentially some tens of thousands of years ago, it was essentially actually like a lake. Um, and, uh, and it was only with the rise in the sea levels that it eventually became connected to the Indian Ocean. Um, and because of its shallowness, um, and because it has a very, uh, soft under, it's got a sandy bottom, um, it has, it, it has to constantly be dredged. Now, what is interesting about that is that, um, it, the shoreline here is some of the most, again, unique shorelines, um, enormous numbers of mangroves. Um, and salt flats, which despite the name salt flat, are actually they have an unbelievably rich life in terms of living things that grow both grow in there and the animals and um, other kinds of uh, marine um, uh, uh, living things that that subsist on it. Um, and so whenever you do dredging in these places or land reclamation, you actually end up destroying these mangroves or salt flats. Mangroves, in fact, have um, dramatically decreased the, the, the mileage of mangroves. But there are other factors about this that are also quite significant. So, um, 
as you know, there have been successive wars in the Persian slash Arabian Gulf. Um, and in each of these wars, tankers have been hit, oil um, f- installations have been blown up. And so there's quite a lot of residue that has um, that has floated down to the bottom of the, the, the sea floor. Um, and so every time you dredge, essentially what you're doing is you're dredging up all these pollutants and re-releasing them into the body of the water. So that's another factor that's quite hideous. And then there's something that people don't often think about. And that is that for uh, the process of land reclamation to work, you actually need enormous amount of concrete, right? Uh, And the way that concrete is made is by mixing cement with aggregate, aggregate being sand and pebbles. Um, Cement itself is one of the most polluting industries in the world because in order for cement to be produced, the kiln in which it is produced, has to the the temperature has to be raised to something like a thousand degrees. And so the amount of CO2 that is released per every ton of cement that is made is unconscionable. It's actually one of the most polluting industries in the world. But on top of the cement that is being, you know, sort of produced and you're having massive amounts of CO2 being released into the atmosphere, you also also have to find these aggregate or the sand that goes, the pebble sand that goes into to making concrete. And what's really interesting is that you would think, okay, this is the Arabian Peninsula, right? The Rab al-Khali, the empty quarter in the, in the me- middle of it is all sand. But what is also fascinating is that desert sand is inappropriate for making concrete because it's wind eroded and wind erosion makes grains of sand too equal to one another and too perfectly shaped into like, they're, they're very uniformly shaped. Um, what you need is river sand or sand that has been water eroded. So sand that comes off the beach. And, um, and so one of the things that happens is that a lot of riparine, uh, ecologies are being destroyed for these enormous amounts of sand to be dug up in order to come do land reclamation and particularly um, uh, you know, there, there used to be huge amounts of sand that was imported from some of the countries of Southeast Asia, but there are now also rivers being dug up in Australia and also some of, some of the ancient riverbeds that are being dug up in some parts in some of the Northern Emirates of the United Arab Emirates itself. And, and of course, that means also that when you're digging up the bottoms of the rivers, the effect of that is also the destruction of the river ecologies, the destruction of beaches. And so in order to build, to, in order to reclaim land in one corner of the world, what you're doing is you're destroying the river ecosystems in another part of the world. And so the effects of these massive projects of land reclamation and dredging is felt not only in situ, where the shore, the sea, um, and the land are all being affected, but also in the climate and also in the river ecologies and beach ecologies elsewhere. You're uh, looking at international shipping partly from an historical perspective. Um, w- when you see some major changes in, in international shipping, we, 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 we've seen the move from, from sail to steam, from steam to the oil engine, uh, later on containerization, which has meant a lot. Uh, how would you say these changes have influenced the, 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 the de- development of, of international capitalism? That's a really great question. I think it's one of the things that's really fascinating is that the move from steam, uh, sorry, from sail to steam was uh, completely and entirely embedded with uh, the rise of the British Empire. So the, the the manner in which that massive switch happened is that you have to have the infrastructures in order for you be, to be able to have coal, for example, to, to run your steam engine. Um, and so um, the, 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 uh, 
East India Company, the British East India Company is switched to uh, steam. And shortly thereafter, the Admiralty, so the British Navy, also switched to steam. But in order for them to be able to have access to coal everywhere they went, they, that process of switching to steam was involved with conquest and colonization of particular places that could become uh, coaling stations. So actually, many of the city-states that are like strung across, like little islands strung across the seas of the world, and also many of the places sitting on particularly important what's considered to be strategic waterways. So for example, where two different seas meet or where a particularly important trade route is located, were colonized by the British. Think about it. Malta, Santa Helena, Singapore, Aden, um, a number of the smaller islands in the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean. And so that process was was you know it's, it was a technological change that that came as that came amidst the, an imperial expansion of the British and then accelerated it. So it was kind of a self-reproducing machine. You um, you you switch to steam and you have to have coaling stations. But in order to have coaling stations, you colonize. But in order to support your uh, you know pro- colonial process, you have to have steam engines, naval you know ships, etc. That do that. So that was enormously significant in that regards. The change from steam to oil was similarly significant because one of the things that it did was it, it, it translated into an acceleration of another kind of imperial expansion. And what is fascinating about that is that British and German coal were some of the best coal in the world, at least in the period of the 19th century where this kind of expansion was happening. But of course, neither Britain nor Germany have oil, or at least they didn't. There was no exploration of the um, North Sea. And so at the time, of course, oil was being produced in the US, it was being produced in Russia, and it was being discovered in the Persian Gulf Basin. And so that switch from uh, from uh, steam, from coal-operated ships um, to oil-operated ships, which actually really um, the engine for it, no pun intended, were, were the Americans and the Russians. Um, Azerbaijan was one of the sort of important um, uh, s- sources of production of oil at the turn of the 20th century. And the British actually became involved in this um, through the exploration of oil in Iran um, and uh, then Iraq and then all of the smaller uh, Gulf uh, Emirates, which are, you know, Qatar, um, Abu Dhabi, uh, etc. And what is fascinating about that is, you know, one of the world's biggest oil companies is called British Petroleum, as you know. Uh, and British Petroleum was actually, the, its original name was Anglo-Persian Oil Company because it was the oil company that uh, did the first exploration in Iran. Um, similarly and significantly, Shell, which of course is Royal Dutch Shell, which um, is uh, his, its headquarters is about, I think, 20 miles away from Rotterdam, although they are changing that, moving exactly, that to, exactly, yeah. to London, yeah. unfortunately. Um, well, unfortunate for who? <laughs> unfortunate for both of us. Yeah. Uh, unfortunate <laughs> because you're losing the business, unfortunate for us because we're gaining it. Um, but, uh, but, but what is interesting about Royal Dutch Shell was that also that they were involved in this process of trade. Maritime trade was very significant to that. In fact, Shell itself was not an oil exploration company. Royal Dutch was. 
was. Um, it's first uh, explored in, for oil in Sumatra. But Shell was actually just a shipping company that transported the oil. And so, again, this transformation from coal to oil was very important in that regard. And, of course, containerization is the third major uh, technological transformation, um, which I write about in the book. And the reason that that was important was because it had several effects. In effect, it automated the process of loading and unloading ships. It reduced the number of seafarers that were required to be on board a ship. So led to a process of automation of seafaring as well. So essentially putting loads of people out of jobs. Mm -hmm. But it also allowed for something called intermodal transport. And intermodal transport means that because everything is in a container, what you do is you bring a crane and you move the container off a ship and you put it on another mode of transport, whether it's a train or a truck or whatever. And so that intermodal transport, in a sense, sped up the process of distribution of goods. And that speeding up has had massive effects. It has had enormous uh, uh, effects, not only uh, in, for example, just in time processing and various other kinds of uh, supply chain transformations. But it has also had a, a massive effect in the way that ports are organized, because you now need enormous spaces in order to warehouse these containers, right? And you need to have processes, you need to have enormous cranes. You, you, if you've taken that um, amazing boat tour, which I always love taking in Rotterdam, that takes you out to the sea, you can see these enormous cranes that move the containers. And so you need space for that. So the effect of this has been that um, ports have actually shifted geographically, often from the center of towns to further and further out in order to have the space to place these um, containers. But that if there, there has been a politics underlying that as well, because um, Mark Levinson, who has written an, a wonderful history called The Box of, of the Container itself, um, one of the things that he's written about is that one unintended but um, uh, effect of the switching to the container, um, but which shipping companies have loved, has been that it has separated out the dockers and the seafarers from the cities in which they live because they have moved 40, 50 kilometers outside. And what that has meant is that it has reduced their ability, for example, to be disruptive for their ability to strike, for example, because they're not getting as much support from the city and there's not as much visibility around their forms of protest. So containerization has had enormous directly economic effects. It has had massive effects in terms of transformation of the urban environment. It has had effects in the way that supply chains are functioning. For example, as I said, we're switching over to, you know, the um, just-in-time production and other kinds of um, sped-up forms of production. But it has had also effects in reducing the ability of labor to influence, uh, influence its working conditions on the docks or on, the, on board the um, ships. Yeah, this obviously has brought us a lot of wealth, international growth, uh, but there has been a growing critique on, on how we have organized uh, uh, international logistics, the, this just-in-time management, this lean and mean um, uh, system, um, not in the least because of the COVID crisis and the environmental crisis we are in at the moment. Um, what kind of world is, is, is slowly being shown to us with, with the, the, the falling back of the curtain? We, we, we have seen this international shipping world um, is it broken is it rotten is it corrupt what 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 is your impression 
This is the way capitalism operates. So it's not that it's broken or corrupt. This is exactly how capital works. Capital, unless there's some forms of limits placed on its operations and it's just functioning as a self-producing machine, um, it will go on ahead and produce uh, in, in the particular way that it does by grinding out humans and environments. And so you need to have forms of regulation that in some senses, um, for, uh, for example, uh, limit uh, their, their ability to produce um, uh, climate uh, transforming, climate changing um, uh, pollutants. Um, and you need to have actually workers um, and other stakeholders that are able to say enough. So one of the things that is, as you mentioned, uh, COVID um, has kind of revealed has been this, um, how incredibly fragile and lean and um, efficient, but unresilient the uh, supply chains that we have um, have been. Um, but not only COVID, but also the spectacle of the ever given blocking the Suez Canal, which is one of the sort of the largest uh, waterways, 12% of the world's goods travel through the Suez Canal um, for uh, by a ship that was arriving from East Asia. In fact, it was supposed to be going to Rotterdam and it was carrying goods. And when it blocked the Suez Canal, of course, there was a massive backlog of ships that were sitting behind it. And one of the things that it revealed to us was the extent to which, for example, German um, auto manufacturing depended on parts that were arriving from those parts of the world. It, for example, showed that IKEA, uh, the Swedish furniture maker, depended on goods that were flat packed, actually, in uh, East and South Asia. Um, there was also even indications that vaccines that were being manufactured, the vaccines that we have, are actually manufactured in India. So there were some indications that some of the ships that were blocked behind the Suez, behind Ever Given, and were unable to come to Europe, actually contained vaccines that had been manufactured in India and couldn't be arrived in time. And one of the things that people involved in supply chain management will tell you is that efficiency is the enemy of resilience. The more efficient you are, the less resilient you will be. And small or large crisis, I mean, the Ever Given was a relatively small crisis. There have been other instances of ships blocking the Suez Canal, none for quite as long as this one, but there have been, um, or large, in the case of the pandemic, has shown the extent to which the, ca the impetus for capital to produce itself at any rate at all uh, is, is devastating. Of course, there are other things that are really important as well. There's a wonderful guy who researches transport for the OECD. His name is Olaf Merck, and he's crunched the numbers. And one of the things that becomes very clear is that shipping is one of the most profitable businesses um, in the world. In fact, uh, and, and the pandemic has resulted in the shipping companies actually making making even more profit than before. It has been one of the most profitable periods in um, modern shipping in, in the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And yet, do you know what their corporate tax payments are? 7%. They pay 7% corporate taxes. You and I probably pay a much larger percentage of our income as taxes than these corporations do. And so that that is, you know, a kind of an astonishing thing to think about is that these uh, companies are making huge amounts of money. They often have these incredibly exploitative wage um, systems in places which don't have strong unions. Like uh, the Netherlands has a very strong um, union system, particularly on the docks. But in places that they don't have such strong unions, essentially 
essentially workers are exploited and you have the environmental devastation that comes from the ships um, uh, putting out pollutants. Um, now, the EU has passed regulations that ships that are arriving into the EU ports have to use fuels that have fewer sulfides in them. So they're not producing sort of sulfuric acid and other kinds of pollutants that are put in the air. But those kinds of regulations don't necessarily apply in other parts of the world. And so what you end up having is that on the one hand, it produces enormous amounts of wealth. Um, and, and the states that have the capacity and the ability and, and, and the, um, the wealth to be able to enforce these kinds of regulations do, as the EU does. But what it results in is that these ships that are, for example, polluting will continue going to Africa. And so they are going to dump their sulfide, you know, pollutants into the air there. Um, and so you, you do have on the one hand this incredible sort of generation of wealth, but you also have the intensification of inequalities. So these are the two big things to think about is that the efficiency causes a lack of resilience. And on the other hand, on the one hand, it produces wealth, but almost in every instance where capitalism produces enormous amounts of wealth, it also increases inequality. Another in insightful case you write about in the book is the, the Beirut port explosion in August 2020. Uh, a large amount of ammonium nitrate stowed in a warehouse in the port of Beirut exploded, killing 200 people and uh, and leaving 300,000 Beirutis homeless. What does this catastrophe tell us about the current state of of, of, of big ship capitalism. So um, one thing to actually also mention is that we think that there were 200, 250 people that have been killed, but there are actually probably a lot more people killed. And part of the reason that we don't know who they were is because they were probably um, either migrants or refugees that were not documented. So I think that's really important to also acknowledge, as many Beiruti activists say, that in fact, probably the, the number of casualties were far larger than, than the official numbers that we have. That's the first. The second thing is that there is um, also a kind of a local politics involved in this, which I think I have to acknowledge. There is, it's very obviously there is what is going on is that the corruption of local politicians of the different kinds of elements of all, all different sides of actually um, uh, the government um, that, that, that have been, um, who, who were negligent in allowing this stuff to be stored um, on the port and are actually blocking the possibility of trying to do investigation work. So it, it, and that includes Hezbollah, it includes the um, party of Saad Hariri, it includes um, the, the president's office, it includes everybody, everybody in Lebanon, um, all the politicians, all the different sides of the political um, spectrum is involved in some way in sort of the corrupt and negligent practices and careless, reckless practices that has resulted in this station. But there's also an international element to this, which I think is really important to acknowledge. And the, the important thing that happens here is a, a process that we essentially, I would essentially call offshoring. Now, what we know that one of the ways in which uh, rich people, whether corrupt or uncorrupt, whether with legal money or money that is being laundered, one of the things that they do is they store their monies in places what, which are called offshore havens. Offshore havens are offshore because they do not, because they provide some uh, degree of secrecy, but they also don't have things like taxes, accountability, and various other processes that would allow for, for example, the countries to which these people with the money that they're storing offshore, it, uh, it doesn't allow the countries that those people belong to to have a look in to, to these offshore havens. These offshore havens are also used for other things to, to for example, not pay taxes. One of the important ways people, for example, um, do this is by um, they buy real estate in one particular place, but they 
uh, register this real estate or they register their assets in an offshore haven. And so because the company that holds that asset is in an offshore haven, it does not pay taxes to, say, the government of Britain or the government of Netherlands. It pays much, much smaller amounts of taxes to that offshore haven, uh, possibly even no taxes at all. But then its money is kept in the in the accounts there or the asset is registered there and they have paid a small fee in order to register that asset there. So one of the ways in which the ship that blew up in Beirut um, uh, has this offshore element, actually two different ways in which the, the um, offshore played in there, was that the ownership of the ship was um, in an offshore island. The ship was owned by Russians, uh, by a Russian owner, uh, but it was registered in Cyprus. And so that's the first kind of uh, red flag to, to watch out for. The other, the second one, which is actually much, much more frequently happens, is that the ship itself was registered, um, I believe, to Mo- Moldova. So that's fascinating because Moldova is a landlocked country. But Moldova, Mongolia, another landlocked country, are actually major offshore ship registries. Um, what that means is that you register your ship in these places and, um, and then what you, do, what these offshore, uh, ship registries or flags of convenience, as the International Transport Workers, um, Federation calls them, or open registries, as these countries call it themselves, essentially what they do is they allow for the ship to be Flying the flag of these uh, countries, so Moldova or uh, Mongolia. Actually, the, the biggest ones are Bahamas, Liberia, um, and uh, Marshall Islands. So these three are the biggest, but there are loads of these um, uh, open registries. And if you register your ship there, then the inspectors from those countries are responsible if something goes wrong with the ship that um, something has gone wrong with. But you also, the labor regulations and environmental regulations that you obey is not the, the labor and regulation, uh, environmental regulations of the country to which the ship belongs, but, but to the country where, where it flies that flag. And so what that translates into is that essentially these ships then can do whatever the hell they want to. They can be in whatever terrible conditions they can be. They can pay extremely low wages. They can obey very few environmental regulations and they can still go on ahead and, you know, float. And so the ship that ended up in Beirut was in fact also registered to Moldova. It was owned in Cyprus. It was a Russian guy that was transporting these ammonium nitrates ostensibly uh, for a country in southern Africa. But there's also a lot of unclear things about why it was taken off. That stuff was went through Beirut, for one thing, and why it was uh, taken off the ship at that stage, why the ship was arrested at that stage. A lot of things are completely unclear about this process. But essentially, in this instance, precisely because these ships were registered to a, a an offshore account, the ship was in terrible condition. We know that potentially it was stopped in the port of Beirut because there was not, it, it was not, the ship itself was not in very good condition, but also because the, the ship seafarers completely complained about the fact that they had not been paid wages. But also, on top of all of that, there was also the fact that it was carrying these goods, which it you know, wasn't supposed to really be carrying. And, and there's a lot of murky things about it. And it could do so because it was, um, a, it was flying a flag of convenience. Would you say there, there is a level somewhere where you can do some regulating in terms of environment, in terms of worker uh, uh, safety, in terms of, uh, and, and, and what would this mean for a city or a port like Rotterdam? 
So there are different ways in which this kind of process of, of offshoring can be regulated. I know that, for example, when it comes to financial accounts, there's now a conversation about enforcing a 20% tax across the board. Um, and there's and there is some conversation about this. So 20% corporate taxes, but also bringing in this process into even uh, co- corporations that are registered in offshore havens. So there's some uh, push uh, for this from actually the US, rather interestingly. And so that, I think, in is a um, that that could be one potential way is a, a push from some of the biggest economic powers for this kind of a leveling of the d- different kinds of requirements for tax, um, etc. I also think that on the environmental issues, the fact that the EU, for example, has passed this regulation about the kind of fuels that ships can use is actually quite important because that means that ships that are actually arriving into EU have to obey those particular regulations. And so some of those ships that are some of those um, flags of convenience have to take into account and have to now require uh, these kinds of regulations as part of the registration process if they want their ships to be able to go into European ports. Um, and I think that in some ways, I think the important, the, the, the biggest ports in the world have to take into account, they have to, they have to balance the economic benefits that they receive from the importation, from, you know, being these ma- major, major hubs of trade against the potential for uh, air pollution, water pollution, for the various kinds of devastations, and also for, you know, people arriving into their ports that are, for example, exploited um, on board the ships. And so I yeah. think that that balance. Yeah. Sorry, how problematic do you think it is at the port of Rotterdam, for example, or Hamburg or Antwerp, to, to, to look at it from a local perspective here in, in, in Western Europe, uh, are still competing for container units, for bulk cargo, for... Um, how do you look at this? Um, in the 1990s, um, when I was a student and I was studying um, globalization, one of the arguments that was often made was, well, if unless you level down your labor regulations or your environmental regulations, the company that was going to come and open its factory in your country is going to take it somewhere else, right? That was one of the arguments that was made. And of course, we know that that is not always the case. Yes, sometimes... Uh, Actually, in sometimes very large scale, the shifts happen um, in a lot of uh, places. So offshoring, for example. But we're also seeing now increasingly processes of onshoring because, um, A, in many instances, the companies want to be closer, their production to be closer to their markets. Um, And one of the ways that you can force this is by forcing environmental regulations. So, for example, taking into account the fact that the cost of transportation has to include the damage to the environment that happens because of that. And so by increasing those kinds of... by increasing those kinds of uh, costs for uh, companies, you can force the bringing together. Now, th- what that means is that, of course, there are going to be com- con- companies that are not going to benefit from that. Shipping companies are probably not going to like that because their huge lifeblood of their business is being able to transport stuff over long distances. But I think that if we want to protect the environment, we do have to take into consideration these very unpopular kinds of processes that might result and degrowth. It might result in shrinking of economies. But if we want to continue living and if we want our children to have a future on this life, we have to take uh, these these extremely unpopular and potentially um, contracting uh, kind of processes of our economies into account. Uh, You write in the book also about new technologies, about about 
things like blockchain, hyperloops, things you're you're critical about. You're you're uh, um, uh, you're critical because they they um, there's the expectation that everything will be made more efficient. What's your what 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 what's your take on this? Why do you think there's so much focus on these these technological fixes? Um, so we know that blockchain, actually, thankfully, between the time that I was writing the book, so 2018, 19, when I was writing the book, and when it, and today, there's a lot more awareness of the devastating effects of blockchain processing for environment, because we know that the processes of blockchain mining and verification of anything that is on a blockchain actually consume so much energy that um, actually uh, there was one instance of like Ethereum. I believe consumes enough energy. Ethereum is a Bitcoin, uh, so a blockchain crypto coin. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, a cryptocurrency. It's it uh, consumes as much energy as the as our, the whole of Argentina. And so, one of the things that is really interesting about this is why is it then that this particular technology that we we know is terrible for the environment? Why why is it that there is still this insistence on on it being? Um, uh, produce or the hyperloop thing. Um, Elon Musk uh, was talking about have putting a sort of a, um, a tunnel in which cars would move and that would stop traffic. And there was a video going around. Thank God for social media and sort of the circulation of these viral videos. There was one uh, video going around that was showing this tiny tunnel with a car coming in and then there being a traffic. And so you're essentially stuck in a tube that is so tight and so small that you can't open your car door. Now, if an accident happens and we know that these electric cars, Elon Musk's Teslas, do blow up, their batteries sometimes blow up, auto- uh, automatically combust. If a fire happens in there and you're stuck in the car, you can't get out of there. So it's it's like basic thinking seems to have taken a backseat, ba- basic thinking about the environment or about safety or um, about the functioning of things has taken a backseat to this fantasy of sort of technological innovation. Now, obviously, technological innovation is necessary. It is the engine of transformation of our lives. Of course, uh, I, I love the idea that vaccines can be invented that can prevent us all from dying. I love the fact that I'm sitting here and speaking to you without having to travel to Rotterdam, you know, via a t- technologies that allow for me to do this. So, but there has to also be an, a calculation of the costs of this, number one. And number two, who benefits? And who suffers from these? And I think those those questions are not always being asked. And the fantasy of the next shiny new thing sometimes blinds us to the actual real functioning and real detrimental effects of those shiny new things to the to, to the world we live, to the to, to our you know sort of uh, to the to the life that our children are going to inherit. We are in a major uh, logistics crisis at the moment. Um, how are we supposed to get out of here? Uh, and and uh, in, 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 in 10, 20 years' time, when we look back, how has international shipping and international trade and logistics evolved over the years after today? 
one of the things that is going to be interesting is that there is a switch to, or there there was a uh, consideration of switching to natural gas precisely because a lot of the countries in the world are now demanding cleaner fuels for shipping. Uh, but of course, we're also seeing the effects of that um, uh, in uh, in that we're seeing massive spikes in the price of natural gas and in unregulated electricity markets like the. Uh, like Britain, a lot of electric companies are actually going out of business um, because the cost of natural gas is just so high. So whether or not this particular spike, this particular moment in um, in, in the price of natural gas is going to delay um, or cause uh, the stoppage to, to the process of um, uh, switching ships to, to, to use natural gas remains to be seen. In, in uh, what other ways do we see this transformation happening? I just really, I mean, it's unclear that this is going to happen. It has to do with a lot of political mobilization. And I see more of this kind of political mobilization among the youth. The Demanding for regulations that will slow down, at the very least, the sort of the devastating effects of climate change and, and the, the devastating causes of climate change. But whether or not the, these younger people are listened to, I think that, that we need to have a reckoning with our democratic systems and the extent to which their voices are heard. Um, and, and I think that that is one of the things I don't want to predict what might happen precisely because I think that the balance of forces at this moment is extremely uncertain. Um, I do see that the next generation really wants something done, but I also see that there being a lot of pushback against that, not only from, uh, you know, uh, capitalists with their shiny machines, um, but also from an older generation that doesn't want to give up some of the access to all of the goods that it has enjoyed up to now, um, no matter what the cost. And so um, I'm, I'm terrible at predicting things, so I won't predict that. But let's just say that I hope that the younger folks that are organizing things continue to do so with the passion that they've been doing, because I think that they are really the only hope we've got left. You were listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Sereman Diaz, Farid Tabarki, Geert Maarsen en myself Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plug Studio. And graphic design is by Studio Space. The Dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fontanel and the Municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast. And check our website, thedependance.eu, for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.